It's time now for the complete story with Dick Bott, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here is Dick Bott with today's complete story. Well, you know, Rich, uh, this is the day after the happening. This is the day after the election. We now have a new president. We will have a new Supreme Court construct. As far as appointments are concerned, we have a lot of things that are quite different that is now before us as Americans. What say you? Well, I didn't get much sleep last night, and all I can say is praise God from whom all blessings flow. I feel like we've been granted a reprieve, and one of the most thrilling thoughts that I have is that we will now have an opportunity to have a Scalia-like judge to replace Scalia on the Supreme Court, and perhaps more more to come. Well, you know, my take my take is a little bit uh, different, not, not in opposition to anything to what you've just said, but my thought is, what can we do as Christians to get things done that we never have gotten done, and to really come together as the Lord's people, and be concerned about the community, be concerned about the, where we live and how, how, we, how we are to live. Francis Schaeffer wrote the book, How Should We Then Live? Is that 25 or 30 years ago? And when I read that book, of course, the Bible speaks to every part of an organized society, whether it's a family structure or a community or a church or anything else. So what do we do then with this opportunity? That's right. We still have, and we have our an extension, perhaps, of our religious liberties. And so how do we use them to advance the gospel? How do we use them to advance the kingdom of God? All right. There wasn't anyone that we interviewed or talked to before the election that inspired me more than Dr. Jim Garlow of Skyline Church in San Diego, California. Because Dr. Garlow, he feels what every pastor feels. First of all, he has a very large church. And by that, I mean, there's a lot of winds that blow and currents in the water, you see. So on so forth, he has a lot of responsibility, but he proclaims the word of God he brings people to the foot of the cross, and he also addresses how should we then live in a community and these other issues. So I want to talk to him and get his take on it as a pastor, as a shepherd. Dr. Garlow, are you on the line? I sure am. Well, what did you think? Tell me this. Were you praying? Were you, uh, were you rejoicing? Were you? How did you feel? <laughs> well, I... We, uh, we were in Washington, D.C., and the reason we were there is because our uh, the weekly worship service that our my, my church, of course, is in San Diego. Yeah, stay right into your phone now. I'm having a little trouble here. Go ahead. Okay. The uh, weekly worship service that we have in Washington, D.C., the Jefferson Gathering, we had three nights of prayer in the Upper Senate Park, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night. And so for that purpose, we flew to Washington, D.C. to be a part of of these prayer rallies on the uh, U.S. Capitol grounds. So we went in in the spirit of prayer, and then we watched through the entire night last night with the spirit of jubilation that God had miraculously intervened. Uh, we, I, I think I feel like the children of Israel who managed to get across the Red Sea only to turn and see Pharaoh's army coming after them and crying out to God, God, it's this is it. Unless you act, there is nothing we can do. And Pharaoh's armies were, were, 
were disbanded and destroyed. Uh, it, one one guy said it's like America has had a stay of execution. Yes. Uh, no 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 candidate can save America, but the fact is, through the election we have, we now have more time to get more people connected with Jesus, and we have more time to try to educate the church to be the church fully and as fully biblically engaged in all of culture, including governmental life. Uh, now, by that, do you mean the salt and the light that we're supposed to be? Well, precisely. And as I've said last time we were together in an interview, I talked about the fact that everybody knows the Bible speaks to personal and family and church issues. But what they, they, they don't seem to understand is what you said at the outset of the show. The, the Scripture actually speaks to governmental, uh, so-called political issues, national life, community life. And we need a lot more pastors that are activated. We have 320,000 uh, Protestant churches in America. 220,000 of those are liberal. They don't care about the Bible, so we put those aside. So we have 100,000 that claim to be Bible-teaching churches, Bible-believing churches. I was speaking at an engagement with George Barna, and I made the statement. I says, I don't know how many of the 100,000 will stand, but I, I think it's probably 15,000. I wish it was 20,000. I wish it was 30,000, but I don't think we have that many pastors standing. So it might be as low as 15,000, 20,000. I said, what does your research show, George? And to my shock, he said, <clears throat> from all the research we have done, we have concluded there's only between six and 10,000 churches in America with pastors that are willing to boldly stand and be culturally engaged with biblical truth. Now, that's a joltingly small number. So what it means is God worked through a very small remnant, number one, and number two, exactly what we anticipated all across America in communities by the thousands. And I run into this continually. Godly lay people picked up the mantle that was not being properly worn, and they said, we're going to stand whether our pastor does or not. I mean, there is strong strong data to support the fact that their congregants are bypassing their pastors and willing to stand when pastors are too cowardly to do so. And I could literally name actual communities, uh, all kinds of statistics showing even various states where this is, this is taking place. So there were, uh, there's a remnant of pastors who are willing to stand, and we need to see a lot more stand, and I pray they'll be willing to. We've got to pray with them, work with them patiently. But then secondly, I applaud the Christian leaders, godly Christian leaders, who were willing to take some risk. And if they had to, bypass their local uh, pastor who wouldn't stand and give leadership to their community in this moment of crisis. Listen, if anyone has missed this, and probably many have, but Vice President-elect Mike Pence said something last night that I want our audience to hear and listen to. Here it is. This is a historic night. The American people have spoken and the American people have elected their new champion. America has elected a new president. And it's almost hard for me to express the honor that I and my family feel that we will have the privilege to serve as your Vice President of the United States of America.
I come to this moment, I come to this moment deeply humbled, grateful to God for His amazing grace. And I'm, uh, I'm deeply grateful to the American people for placing their confidence in this team and giving us this opportunity to serve. And I'm mostly grateful to our president-elect, whose leadership and vision will make America great again. Well, now, Dr. Garlow, what do you say to people who do not agree with what he said? Because he said making America great. He said the leader and all of the cheering. But there's a lot of people who uh, who care about their their lives and their employment and going on with their dreams. What do you say to them who may not feel with, with the way uh, Mike Pence just spoke? Well, Obviously, the conciliatory tone of Mike Pence and Donald Trump uh, has been has been very, very good. And even uh, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan this morning, these are all victors who are speaking, and, and they I thought they've handled themselves in precisely the right way. When we talk about make America great again, Alex de Tocqueville, third in the 1800s, said America's great because America's good. And this goodness we speak of is a righteousness, a fierce commitment to the things of God. And when we talk about that, that, that is not just academic pablum we're spitting out. That's not just some, some kind of campaign slogan. We're, we're talking, let's just be very specific so we know that this is concrete. There are 6.3 million babies in the womb of mothers across America, it's believed. Now, <clears throat> Donald Trump won't be able to repeal Roe v. Wade immediately, but in time with his new Supreme Court, that will adhere to the Constitution, have constitutional integrity, that means babies in the womb will not have to fear being ripped to shreds. It means that if we do right on the Supreme Court and we actually follow the Constitution, we will not continue to governmentally affirm and codify Sodom and Gomorrah. It also means that the persecution, the persecution, harassment, fines, threatens of imprisonment, on people who have religious convictions could come to an end. Hillary Clinton spoke a moment ago. Now, her tone was conciliatory as the one who lost. But she said, we have freedom of worship. No, we have freedom of religion. That's, that's a huge difference, constitutionally productive. That means we have the right of the actual, our forefathers would use the word rights of conscience rather than religious liberty. But religious freedom means we act out on our religious faith in the public square. When Hillary Clinton says you have freedom of worship, that means you can worship like you want in the four walls of your church. No, that's not what the Constitution affirms, something much greater than that. It means that Benjamin Netanyahu can breathe a sigh of relief that finally someone is in leadership again in America, like every Democrat and Republican were until Barack Obama and John Kerry and Hillary Clinton, and they won't sell out to the enemies of Israel which would, by cursing Israel, would bring a curse upon America. It means, in very practical terms, that codified governmental thievery, that is running up an excessive debt, when we talk about a debt of $20 trillion, it's so big we can't imagine, then we add in unfunded liabilities of the nation plus the individual states. We're up to $220 trillion. That's called thievery because that's, that's stealing from future generations. It means 
that's going to have to be addressed. Now, that's a hard one. It means corruption and dishonesty in high places. Well, what I what I what I think what I think I'm hearing you say is we must return to being a moral, a moral people living by biblical principles of construct in our communities, our life, and everything else. Because debt is one of the things that the Bible speaks about. Exactly, and making America great again means America has to be good again, and good translates into walking in. Holiness, righteousness, justice, and truth. And I, I pray that there, we, we certainly know that with Mike Pence would understand precisely what I just said and the exact words I used uh, to articulate that. And Donald Trump, I pray he's got some very good, very good counselors uh, around him. I, I pray now that he's elected, it'll be important that, that some gatekeeper doesn't come along and block all the good and godly people from him. We've seen that happen in some past presidents, so we pray that that does not happen. And he continues to do what he's done remarkably well. Uh, James Robison uh, has spoken into his life continually. I mean, I mean, we're talking calling all the way down to multiple times last night and, and, and speaking into his life. He's part of, I, I serve with James on the, the uh, Trump faith advisory team. Now, I think that that team probably ceases to exist now. I would guess now the election's over, as far as I know. But the point is, he has been receptive. Donald Trump has put around him some very good and godly people. Yeah. That's extremely important. Our guest on this chapter, The Complete Story, on this day after the election is Dr. Jim Garlow, the pastor of Skyline Church in San Diego, California, which I think is very interesting, too, because can anything good come out of California? I've thought about that, you know, how many wonderful. Chuck Swindoll came out of California. J. Vernon McGee came out of California. John MacArthur came out of California. But I always kind of chuckle, you know. But there you are in San Diego, and you are speaking truth. You are speaking truth and righteousness to the nation. Certainly, the Bot Radio Network audience. Rich, what were you going to say? Dr. Carla, you mentioned earlier about the lay leadership in so many churches that were encouraging Christians to come out and vote. And then also, a lot of uh, the Bible teachers that you hear on Bot Radio Network recorded announcements encouraging Christians to get out and vote. I know the National Religious Broadcasters had a campaign in that regard. And then Franklin Graham had 50 state capital rallies all over the United States in encouraging Christians to pray and vote. And uh, I, I heard that ABC reported that this was the largest turnout in ev- of evangelicals in history to the polls. And so I thank God for the role that, that God's people played in this. Yeah, um, That is a remarkable statistic that ABC reported, and it was reported on Fox as well. And it means that Christians are getting it, that voting is not merely a right legally, which it is, but from a Christian standpoint, it is a responsibility of the believer to vote. And then also you mentioned Israel, and I read that Netanyahu congratulated Donald Trump on his victory and referred to him as a true friend of Israel. That is, uh, that's remarkable. Jason Greenblatt is the name of Donald Trump's personal attorney. He's the uh, chief legal officer of the Trump Organization. He's been Trump's attorney for 20 years. My wife and I have had the occasion to get acquainted with him. He's Jewish and fiercely committed to Israel, articulate on the issues, and he's Trump's one of two main advisors uh, to Donald Trump on the issue of Israel. 
So he's getting great counsel there as well. And, that, and, and that's it, important, it, because God it, promised to bless those that bless Israel and curse those that curse Israel. It, it cannot be overstated how important that is, because here's the way, my, I, I would say it this way, and I'm influenced by my wife's thinking, she's made 58 trips to Israel, but the way she would articulate is one of the reasons God is still blessing Israel is because the history of the U.S., I mean, the, God is still blessing America, rather, is because America has a good history of blessing Israel. In spite of all America's systemic evils, we've done 10,000 things right, but we've also done some things wrong, the violation of Native American treaties, the uh, enslavement of blacks, uh, and bringing them across the ocean against their will, and the Jim Crow laws, and, and the killing of babies, and the and the destruction of marriage, in spite of these horrific things that America's done wrong, probably the only thing that's kept the blessing of the Lord coming is we historically have blessed Israel, and God has promised to bless us. And so to have a president who's willing to stand with Israel and say no to a two-state solution, absolutely not two-state solution. We already have a two-state solution. It's called Jordan. Yeah. 75% of the land is over there. It can be used by whoever wants to be there if they don't want to be in Israel. Uh, but we have a president who will stand. That is unbelievably encouraging to America's bright future. Uh, Dr. Cardo, I understand that Donald Trump in his uh, speech uh, last evening also said that he is going to be committed as president not just to talk about the poverty in America in the inner cities and places like that, but as the leader of all of the people, he's going to be committed to do something about it and make the schools uh, man up and really do the education of the children that they deserve to have, as well as the other things, so that we are all going to consider every city is one city and one state and one country, and we're going to work together under his leadership and the people he draws around him to make that happen. Now, that should give the people something to rejoice about and to favorably anticipate. I, I feel very strongly about this one. In 2015, my wife and I, in January of 2015, were on a 21-day fast, and the Lord broke our heart over the issue of uh, the need for racial reconciliation. So I've been periodically meeting with some uh, black leaders and saying, teach me, teach me. And I had one again last week where uh, just three or four of us as white pastors met with a few black pastors and for four hours and say, talk to us, talk to us. And what has flowed out of a number of meetings is, a, a kind of for me, a five-pronged strategy. We shouldn't just say, oh, I'm not a racist, some of my best friends are black. That doesn't cut it. We have to take concrete action to address some serious... You know, problems. really, that, that's almost insulting to say it that way, isn't it? Or even, it and sometimes people say it and they don't even realize it. Yeah, they don't, I'm sure they don't mean any harm, but it, it does come across in a way uh, to the hearer different than probably the person saying it. But one is educational, and by that I mean just imagine. We, we, we talked as white and black pastors last uh, week. Okay, how do we, we have plenty of people in our, in our white churches who could be involved strongly in tutoring, moving into the black communities in large numbers and addresses, because the rule of thumb that's oftentimes said is for every black boy who can't read by the third grade, they, they're preparing a prison cell for him pretty painful thought. And then the second thing is economic investments into the, into the black areas. Now, we as individuals can't do that, but if we have a president and a Congress who grasp the economic dimensions 
of sociological, sociological lift in these, in these uh, urban areas, that could be addressed. Throwing money at them does not work no. in and of itself. No. But there are strategies of economic investment that can make a difference. The fourth thing is judicial reform. That has to be looked at, and the good news is Republican and Democrats yeah. in Congress are, 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 are actually, there's many, I'm very serious about, about this, an overhaul needed, and, and the last year has taught me a lot about that. And then prison reform. I'm a, I'm a law and order guy, do the, do the crime, do the time, but at the same time, I recognize we, how many we have in our prisons who are completely nonviolent, and they're being taught to be erudite prisoners, I mean criminals, instead of being useful to society. Well, t- tell me this. Um, the thing that bothers me is how many do we have in our prisons who, when they were 10 and 11 and 12 years old, no one, no one was taking charge of them to say, listen, we want these kids to grow up so they're not going to be in prison. It, it really starts with the family, with the mothers and the fathers and the churches demanding a good, organized society in which everyone can grow up and not end up in prison, doesn't it? That takes me to the fifth point, the fifth of the five prongs, and that is the, the one that's the most important, that really addresses the other four, is the family. Because if the, these, these, most of the guys in prison do not have daddies, and in, in, not in the home with them. And so consequently, show me a, 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 a boy and a girl, if they'll get a high school diploma or even a GED, and then get married, secondly, and then have children, third, the risk proneness of that child is vastly reduced. If and, it's done in the order of high school, then marriage, then then having, having babies, and, and the daddy staying with the family. And then understanding that in their deepest being, that that is the expectation of an orderly life for themselves. And our, our governmental policies, since the great society, since, since Lyndon Johnson's great society, since he, the war on poverty has de- helped destroy, whether it was intentional or not, I'm not assigning blame, but uh, it has destroyed the, the black family, the African-American family, was able to stand through the horrors of slavery and much of Jim Crow laws, but they could not withstand the onslaught of the structure of the welfare system under the war on poverty, it literally devastated the families, and now we have all these boys without daddies, and they end up in prison overwhelmingly. I tell you what, now the problem, the broadcast is getting away from us, but um, I want to I want to open up a little discussion here on legal and illegal. Illegal is outside the law. We are an orderly society. We are a law and order. Uh, country, nation, construct. And uh, so you have people then that are here in America uh, illegally, and that means they are here outside the law. And we have to get that straight, do we not? When I was watching Ivanka Trump, Donald Trump's wife, speak the other night, you see, she's an immigrant. Where did she come from? One of the Eastern European countries, I think. And she had an accent, and I thought, wouldn't that be nice to have a first lady who is an immigrant? But she came here legally. Good for her. One of my good friends called me on the phone, and he was so happy the way it all turned out. And I said, David, I said, David, I said, "Um, it was just like your grandparents came here from Italy. And then your own mom and dad came here from Italy. You see, and he said, yes, and they did that legally. 
And I said, that's the difference. There's a big difference in a country like ours, which is either orderly and doing things according to law, and the laws can always be changed if the people choose to do that. And it's like two people that say they own a car, but one stole the car and the other bought the car. You know, there's a big difference. One says he's a car owner illegally, and the other purchased the car the way the law says he should. I don't know if that's a good illustration, but he seemed to accept it that way. And that is very important, isn't it? We are a nation of immigrants, but we do so according to the law that we have enacted, and uh, and everybody has to abide by it. Yes, the the, the complexity of this one. Is, I went down on on the border through two different times. I gone through what they call border school. Three days taught by sheriffs on the border, and what are what are what set up the, this horrific problem is our government allowed laws to go into destitute. That's when laws are on the books and they refuse to enforce it both Democrats and Republicans. Democrats wouldn't enforce it because they wanted quick votes. Re- Republicans wouldn't vote it, uh, enforce it because they wanted cheap labor. And so consequently, when the, when the sheriffs along, there's 31 counties along the southern border, and two of these guys, I spent some time with down there uh, and, and, asking, and, and getting a lot of instruction from a whole lot of people. And when they begged Washington, D.C., uh, both to Barack Obama and George W. Bush before that, for the support they needed, they, they refused, the federal government refused to give it. So what we had was a federal government, not the state was trying, but a federal government that was illegal. It was nullifying its own laws. It was functioning illegally. Well, when the story spreads that a law's in destitute, means it's not being enforced, then of course people are going to come across. Yeah. We have laws on the books today, and once they're not enforced, then people start violating them. Yeah. So we had an illegal government that created illegal citizens. And so now what we have with all these people, we need a clear, a clear pathway that draws people to the American way of life. They have to pay fines, taxes, have to learn English, uh, need to take citizenship, need to commit to the aware American way. And it needs, that's not amnesty, because that's fines. Amnesty is when you blink at something. But it, what created illegal aliens was an illegal government that refused to do what was right and enforce the law. And so we've got to get the government right, and then we've got to get the people who, under that law, did what they did. So it's, it's, it's correctable if we have strong, godly, principled leadership that will address it the proper biblical ways. It's, a, it's addressable, but it is it's a challenge. And, 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 you know, I think just the way you have said it is the way people feel it when they understand it. Do we not need more discussion more time to give and take, more time to meet and talk about these things, because at the end of the day, we're not divided by party, political party. We're not divided about who is a Baptist or who is a Nazarene or who is Assembly of God or whatever that may be, or Methodist, but we are divided by individual people, even either having an idea as to what it means to be an American and what it means to have the freedom of expression and understanding and cohesion of thought or we are just a divided people. And the division of people is what we have way too much of, and we need to come together and discuss it and lay it out, and we need to have more forums of that type, don't we? Oh, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, we have, we have people from the left screaming at people at the right and, and, and back and forth on this particular issue. 
and we can't get it dislodged. And I think what I've laid out acknowledges the first place of sin being the government. Yeah. And having recognized the complete violation of our own laws by our own government, that's what tolerated, for example, sanctuary cities. Th- those, those should be illegal, but they did them. And so now we have all these people who've come. Now what, if we could get the government back to a position of integrity where when it says something, it means it, and it walks by its own laws, then we address all the people who came here illegally under the illegal actions of the government. Then you can address it by the pathway I just laid out, which, again, I want to underscore, uh, contrary to the critics, is not amnesty. Amnesty, you wink at the sand and say, that's okay. No, this is a price that is paid. And all, all the Hispanic friends that I know, that's what they're asking for. They're not asking for amnesty. They're asking for a pathway by which legalization can take place. They're not even asking for citizenship, asking for legalization. And given the fact that what the government did first, this, to me, is the only right and moral and scriptural way out of the dilemma that we face on this issue. And you're saying that as a pastor of a very large church in San Diego, California. Rich was in your church last Sunday morning, and he said it was so diverse. You had people from every walk of life, every nationality, and they were all there praising the Lord. At the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross. We, uh, we, we're, we're very blessed. I, I'm, very, I'm very honored and thrilled to have the privilege of pastoring the wonderful people I do at Skyline Church in San Diego. All right, we're out of time. This is Dick Bott with this chapter of The Complete Stories of Public Service, and I'll see you later. 